Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, December 11th. Rumours about the future of NDP leader Rachel Notley are swirling. Speculation she'll soon step down. Get the latest on Alberta's political landscape, including an update on the state of the proposed Alberta pension plan from Lori Williams, Mount Royal University political scientist. The UN Security Council is calling for the use of Article 99 to help push for a ceasefire between Israel and terrorist group Hamas. To discuss the resolution and why the U.S. has blocked it, we spoke with Robert Hewish, Associate Professor in International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. And when you're thinking about gifts for the kids this holiday season, you might want to take eye health into consideration. We invited Dr. Vivian Hill, Pediatric Ophthalmologist and Chair of the Council on Advocacy of the Canadian Ophthalmological Society to join us and talk about the impact screens have on the eye health of our children. Could the leader of the official opposition, the NDP leader, Rachel Notley, be planning to step down before the end of the year? Joining us to talk about the state of politics in Alberta is Lori Williams, Mount Royal University political scientist. Hi, Lori. How are you? Hi, Sue. I'm well, thanks. Excellent. I'm good. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Last week, Rachel Notley stood for uh, her last question of the day and got a standing ovation from the caucus. And some are saying that that's maybe a sign she is soon going to resign. What do you think? Is it likely? Well, I think it is likely before the next election. The fact that she lost two successive elections, even though she did very well and came very close in the last election. Um, The reality is, uh, if you weren't going to win in the face of some of the things that were going on in the last election, uh, it's unlikely that you're going to win with Daniel, with sorry, with uh, Rachel Notley um, as as leader. So it's likely to happen before the next election. So it's not a matter of, of if so much as when. So you think it may be not before the end of the year or does she take Christmas off? I mean, she's been a very strong leader of the opposition, one that we we really haven't seen in this province prior to. So, you know, is it is it something that she does at the end of the year and kind of says, well, that's it. I like I throw in the towel because I just I can't seem to catch any more traction. Yeah, well, I mean, she has been extraordinarily successful. She did win and become premier in mm-hmm. 2015. Uh, she's certainly done consistently well uh, against conservatives in a province where conservatives have enjoyed a fair bit of dominance. She's an extraordinarily talented politician. Um, despite all of that, she she uh, has lost a couple of elections, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of folks are looking for what they can do better next time to build on the momentum that's generated so far and see if they can do better. But again, there are those questions about how well she has done and who, if anyone, can do better. That's the thing. So yes, she didn't win, but she is a very strong leader. And, and who might be the person who kind of, if she does resign, who, who who takes over? Because there are quite a few powerful names in the NDP, I would think, but enough as strong, anyone as strong as Rachel Notley to, to become the next leader, do you think? Well, it's not clear at this stage um, who that might be or who might even be interested in the job. Um, and I think... One of the reasons why I'm wondering whether this might be a sort of a longer term sort of transition is that um, a lot of those folks that came in for the first time just just last last year um, or sorry last spring um, have not had really enough time to to work their way up. I remember when Rachel Notley first came in, she and of course they only had four people in their entire caucus mm-hmm. and the work that she was doing and how long it took for her to sort of find her footing. Um, I, I would think that 
that the people within her caucus, if one of them is looking to become leader, would like a little bit more lead time, a little bit more time to get used to to what's going on, feel like they've got the lay of the land, um, that they can start to, to uh, um, be more effective in their position um, as, let's say, a shadow cabinet minister and so forth. How important is it to have a strong uh, official opposition party? Well, it can really be effective if they look like not only like they're criticizing the government, but that they've got proposals and ideas that that offer a credible alternative. So that that phrase government in waiting sort of suggests Mm -hmm. they have the capacity to govern and do a better job of it than the the current government. That's the sort of um, sort of picture that that they want to give to voters, a sense that they've really got a better uh, set of ideas and the capacity to achieve them. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about um, the Alberta pension plan. Where are we now with that? We sort of have a little bit more in terms of concrete numbers, um, Mm -hmm. potentially, whether you believe them or not. There seems to still be a lot of criticism about those numbers. But does that uh, does that help the APP move forward anymore? Well, given there's a lot of uncertainty uh, amongst Albertans who who say that they don't they don't know what it's going to mean for them. And, and so they're more reluctant. There's a, a sense that they don't quite know if it's going to benefit them. Um, some of them are concerned about the, the damage it might do to other Canadians. Uh, but it's that uncertainty that I think has got a lot of folks uh, quite hesitant, quite undecided. Um, you know, the latest polling indicating that it looks like more Albertans support the idea than did when the process started. It's still about half of Albertans that oppose it. And that's a pretty big number if you're looking to try to win a referendum. Mm-hmm. When might a referendum be held? Should that be the next step? I don't think we're going to see a referendum unless and until the government. I mean, it would it would be folly to spend the kind of money involved if you know you're going to lose the the referendum anyway. So, so I, the thing about about the the idea of a referendum is that it allows the government to appeal to the folks who do support the idea of uh, an Alberta pension. Um, look like they're doing something in their direction and they can just say, look, we're, we've done everything we can and the majority of Albertans don't agree with us. So, you know, we're not going to spend the money on a referendum um, and we'll, we'll stick with the plan that currently exists. But that is, uh, you know, the premier, that's sort of always been Danielle Smith's pet project was this APP. Is she, I don't think she's going to give up on it anytime quickly. Do you? No, she doesn't want, I mean, clearly she wants it. She and a number of other people are committed to it. They think it it will benefit um, Albertans uh, in part, and I think this might be one of the reasons some Albertans are opposed to it, in part because it would give funds um, to uh, the Alberta government to try to to invest in and generate um, benefits for the Alberta economy, but it could also leave it more vulnerable to to volatility. Um, So she's clearly committed to it, and a number of people inner inner circle are committed to it but but you're not nobody wants to go and spend the kind of money and time involved in in uh, a referendum if you're not going to mm. to win the the appeal of it is that it's something that alberta could do um or initiate with on its own in other words this unlike equalization or something else is something that alberta has the ability to actually start the the clock on um, but if you don't have the support of Albertans to do it, then then you can just say to your your supporters or those who support the idea of an Alberta pension, we just don't have the support of Albertans. And if you're a government that says it's going to listen to Albertans, as most Democratic governments do, and Danielle Smith in particular has done, um, this gives you the out that that um, that helps you to 
to avoid sort of the embarrassment of losing an election. Mm-hmm. Let's look back at this year in politics in uh, 2023, provincial politics. What, what do you think has been sort of the biggest story of the year? Would the APP be one of them? Yeah, I, I think this is one, the one that's generated the most national attention. It certainly ruffled feathers amongst premiers elsewhere in the country. It, it And I think that probably was not expected. Um, my, uh, it could have been anticipated that there would be opposition, but the level of opposition, I think, is has been quite significant. The most support they've gotten is from a premier that disagrees with the idea but understands the sentiment um, behind it. Um, you know, even Saskatchewan isn't going to support this because it's if this were to happen across the country, it'd be a, a net loss for folks in Saskatchewan. So that's probably nationally been um, the biggest story, but it. it sort of fits into a larger theme of Alberta um, and Daniel Smith in particular advocating for Alberta's interests uh, in the rest of Canada. And it also, I think, highlights a problem in that we've got a very rich province um, made up of a bunch of folks that are are earning higher incomes than elsewhere in the country that seem to be complaining that they're not getting enough. And that part of the message is, is not helping. Do you anticipate, you know, with that said, moving into 2024, is that, will there be more of the same? It'll sort of be, you know, Alberta battling with the federal government? Well, I think because it resonates with the base that Daniel Smith is going to continue. I mean, obviously, this has been central um, from the beginning, well, from the beginning of her candidacy for for premier, but certainly from the beginning of her premiership, the idea that uh, Alberta is going to fight for its um, its interests in Canada um, and to try to keep uh, Ottawa out of certain certain areas. Um, that certainly has been the theme of her her um, premiership so far. The question is whether it's going to be effective. It doesn't. If it doesn't make a difference, if it if it doesn't help Albertans with their, the day to day issues that they're dealing with. I mean, many people heard the the uh, her phone in show over the weekend. She was just getting slammed for her position on on healthcare and the concerns around healthcare. Um, I think those issues, affordability and healthcare, are much more important to Albertans than things like uh, the pension plan, or or even some of these questions around um, uh, envi- environmental issues and emissions caps. So um, it looks like the the uh, advocacy for Alberta's interests are not resonating as much with Albertans as the concerns they have around healthcare and affordability. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for uh, for reviewing and, and letting us know your thoughts. Appreciate your time. Have a great holiday. Well, thank you. And you too. Merry Ta- Christmas. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, Laurie. Laurie Williams, Mount Royal University political scientist. On Friday, the UN Security Council voted on the use of Article 99 to urge the organization's most powerful body to call for a ceasefire between Israel and terrorist group Hamas. However, the U.S. used its power of veto to block that ceasefire resolution. Joining us to talk about it is Robert Hewish, Associate Professor in International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Good morning, Robert. Thanks for being back with us. Yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks so much. Uh, can you break down first off, what is Article 99 all about? Well, that's basically where the UN General Assembly is in a position to put uh, pressure on the Security Council and the subsidiary bodies from it uh, when it comes to a major international crisis like what we're seeing between wars, Israel and Hamas. So essentially, if the UN General Assembly is in a spot to support to support that uh, Article 99, then the Security Council then would be able to hear it, and then uh, from there, 
uh, agree on some sort of terms that would encourage a, a ceasefire position. So it's not like they're they're able to to in themselves have the authority to end it all, but they can put in the right steps for the Security Council to then put in more steps to see if a ceasefire is possible. So clearly the UN wants to work towards a ceasefire, but then the US steps up and uses a, a, a veto power to block it. Why would they do that? Yeah, and that's something else that happens within the Security Council members is that you get those who have the veto status, the, uh, the, the Security Council sitting positions are able to, to put those vetoes in. And I think right now the, the, uh, the measure that the U.S. has put forward is a form of uh, support for the Israeli Defense Forces to say that their job isn't finished yet and they still are after the, uh, the the leadership and organization of Hamas. So that's that is where I think it's it's coming from. And we also can recognize that uh, you know the U.S. is the leading supplier of military aid and assistance to Israel, as it is to several other countries in the region, including Egypt. So, yeah. So there, I mean, you know, there are a lot of countries that have are backing Israel here and and don't want to see this ceasefire come along necessarily unless Israel is ready for it. And correct? Is that sort of what we're, we're thinking? That's it. And I think that the bigger question is, you know, can an outside body uh, like the UN actually get in a position to encourage uh, a ceasefire? Well, if anything, it's, it's a step back in the right direction of trying to respect at least some sort of international order, which both Hamas and Israel have, have overlooked uh, during, during this war as respect for any sort of international order. So the fact that's happening is a good step forward. But I think ultimately... Any sort of real digging into a peace process is going to require uh, sort of a made-in-Israel, made-in-Palestine solution, which will involve likely a change of leadership of both. So there's no way that peace is going to occur if Hamas is still in a position of authority of Gaza. And likewise, we could also see that President Benjamin Netanyahu, his actions here are probably now to the point where Israelis would be in a good position to say, do we need to change the leadership in order just to get a peace process going? Because the Prime Minister of Israel has, has just uh, been on such a war path from the beginning uh, that uh, even though the the expectations is to remove Hamas, look at the, the collateral damage and the thousands of lives that have been lost as a result of this. Robert, why try to enact this Article 99 in, in this particular conflict and not, I mean, there are other conflicts going on around the world. Why try to step in for the UN Security Council in this one particularly? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, and this one is sort of becoming a very important geopolitical chess piece. It's one where we're, we're seeing that it's uh, it's not just between two belligerents here. This is, this is a, a conflict that is having an impact within the entire Middle East. You know, remembering that uh, the normalization of relations with Israel and other Arab states was well underway before the October attacks, and now that's been all put in hold. We do have a humanitarian crisis breaking out. We've got, um, you know, a displacement of people from Gaza down to the south now from what was formerly, you know, the, the, the northern part of the territory. So you've got a number of issues here that all require some level of support and assistance from the UN and the UN agencies. So my guess is that there's there's this overwhelming uh, outspokenness to try to, to get a peace process underway. We see the weekly protests in every city around the world 
uh, calling for a ceasefire, calling for an end to this. And now I think it's, it's, an, it's something the U.N. has taken up, realizing that their agencies will have a responsibility in this conflict going forward. And yet, as you said, Israel is not stopping and not backing down just yesterday, striking more than 250 Hamas targets in 24 hours. Clearly, Israel is bent on this task of destroying Hamas and, and removing that threat permanently. And is anything going to stop that? Well, the only thing that could actually stop it would be the, the sort of international nature of, of Hamas itself. I mean that the, 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 the folks who are leading the war in, in Gaza right now are you know, Hamas who's there. But Hamas is international. And we have to remember that the, the military leadership in Hamas, some of them are in Lebanon. We see that the political leadership of Hamas, they're in Qatar. And we've seen the financial support coming to Hamas has been actually in Turkey. So as Israel is saying, look, we are, we're going to eliminate and eradicate Hamas at all costs, it's not just a process of attacking the southern part of the Gaza Strip. To really get at this organization requires going after and dealing with the international financiers and the politicians in other countries who have been supporting them. And that's a, that's a huge difference today. Than, uh, than, than what we've seen with, with sort of these struggles in the past is that you've got a huge bankroll coming into Hamas from foreign actors that, uh, that few people are actually talking about or on the streets protesting for or against, but it's definitely part of the equation in trying to deal with this organization. Do you think then, you know, is it even possible to Hamas, obviously, if it's worldwide, you're not going to wipe them out? Uh, you know, immediately, but is it possible to remove Hamas from Gaza? Yes, that I believe it is. And, and the only reason that, that Hamas is still there is because as an organization, they themselves have put the people in Gaza in harm's way and have not done anything for the general well-being of Palestinian people uh, since they've taken power. And that's, that's something that, that you will hear and you'll read quite a bit about the about the conditions in Gaza, that most Palestinians would be happy to see these guys gone, because of the way that they that they operate, the way that they intimidate, the way that they have encouraged uh, corruption and, and and the pettiness within within Gaza itself. That, that Hamas is not really a trusted freedom fighting organization. Mm-hmm. It's one that that's really really bent on maintaining its own positions of power and control often benefit those who aren't even in Gaza themselves. So the way to get at these guys is to dry up their finances. That's the first step. And then in dealing with a, a, a peace process or a ceasefire, recognizing what political leadership in these other countries was working to support them in the first place. Thank you so much, as always, for breaking it down. Appreciate your time this morning. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. Robert Hewish, Associate Professor in International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. The holiday season is just around the corner. Could be challenging to keep your kids off their devices and limit screen time over the holidays while they're home from school. Uh, Joining us to talk about the impact that screens have on our eye health is Dr. Vivian Hill, pediatric ophthalmologist and chair of the Council on Advocacy for the Canadian Ophthalmological Society. Good morning to you, Dr. Hill. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It's tough because, listen, that's their world and we all know it. But give us a little bit of, you know, the connection between screen time and the impact on our eyes. 
I think there's two main reasons that screen time impacts eyes. One, it, for children, for developing vision, it has been shown to increase levels of nearsightedness or myopia. And we're seeing a, an increasing trend across the globe, particularly after the pandemic when screen time increased significantly, both for adults and for children. And you say, well, uh, what's the problem with myopia? And that's something that you'd need to wear glasses for. But the real issue going forward in myopia is that it causes a stretching or elongation of the eyeball. And this can lead to problems down the road in adulthood, such as uh, retinal detachment, glaucoma, and other kind of more worrisome things. And um, we, we're certainly seeing more and more that screen time is linked to the development of myopia in addition to sort of um, genetic factors. What is it exactly doing when we watch screens? And I mean, obviously, it's got to be affecting us as adults and everyone in between, too. If it, if it's a, it has an effect, it has an effect on everybody's eyes, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it does. But uh, the difference between children and adults is that in children the eyes are growing still and it and it creates an we don't really know why to be honest but we do know that there's some sort of signal or mechanism that makes the eye grow too long the the thing with adults looking at screen time they they get a fatigue looking at screens so we know that blink rates decrease to one blink per 10 if you're staring at screen, and this can lead to dry eye, especially in Alberta, where it's dry already. And the strain as well can sometimes put additional strain on the muscles that cross the eyes. And we can, in, in some cases, actually in adults, even start seeing some double vision happening after excessive screen and in, in those that are prone to it. What kind of time are we talking? What, what's too much for a child or for an adult? Oh, you know, that's a, uh, that's a great question. I think, um, I think for children, we like to keep them under, you know, an hour or two. I think that it's an issue in school in that as children advance through the middle years of school, there's increased demand. And I tell my patients to choose screens perhaps that are a little bit bigger so that they can be pushed further away. There is a big difference between holding a screen at 20 centimeters versus 30 or 40. So I think that um, the amount of safe time sort of depends on the type of screen. I think if it's a phone and they're um, staring at it um, long periods of time very close, that is a lot worse than, you know, what we did watching television mm -hmm. or looking at a screen that's further away. Why so? I mean, what, what's the difference between the phone and, and the tablet, say? Um, you're holding it closer. Okay, and that's uh, more small, strain. Yeah, it creates, it stimulates the problems more. So holiday season, kids are going to be on break. They're probably going to be in front of devices. Maybe they're getting a device or parents are thinking about it or grandparents thinking about a device for the kids. How do we look at eye safe gifts for the kids this year? Well, I, I look at eye safety in a couple of ways. For, for little kids or for all children, we look at choosing safe toys. So limiting sharp toys, uh, toys that have projectile, projectiles you know, Nerf guns, things like that. I mean, you can use those, but you want to have eye protection. 
So um, there are toys that can create eye trauma uh, uh, acutely, like scratches in the eye or blunt trauma to the eye. And then there are toys that can have more of an insidious um, negative impact, like too much small screen. So I think um, you just have to choose wisely in in terms of um, toys that uh, might reduce uh, both screen and the chance of getting something in the eye. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, I was going to say, let's face it, they're, they're going to be on the screen, so, yeah. so look for toys that are completely different from that then, right? Pardon me? I, I was going to say, like, screen, the, the keep away from the screens and, and, and fun toys, look for those instead that are safe, Absolutely. obviously, but something different. Yeah, safe ones, something different, something they can take outside. Um, and that's a real key factor for eye health as well, to be outside in the daylight. It seems to reset the eyeballs of children to not be as vulnerable to screen. So if they can spend an hour or two outside, um, particularly over the holidays, and use that as a bit of an antidote to the screen, that is, um, that is something that we can all do, and it's healthy in so many ways, fitness, mind, mm-hmm and eyeball. Dr. Hill, on that note, um, sunglasses, are they important for young kids as well as older? Oh, you know, we always talk about UV protection and UV light causing um, potentially impacting cataracts and um, changes down the road in adulthood. I am a little bit um, on the fence with that. So I do think absolutely for intense amounts of UV light, wear sunglasses if you're up in the mountains or you're you know, on holiday outside. But I do think it's important that children get a certain amount of natural sunlight coming into their eyes. And you could use a, a brimmed hat for that, particularly children of parents who are nearsighted, because we do know that some exposure to sunlight is important to reduce progression of myopia. So I think, yes, with the caveat that I like to see a little bit of exposure to sun, particularly in children who are at risk to develop myopia. Yeah, thank you so much for your time this morning and and breaking it down. An important chat to have before Christmas, before maybe you've bought all the toys for the kids, maybe something to think about. So thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Appreciate it. Dr. Vivian Hill, pediatric ophthalmologist.